0: Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The murder trial of Eugene Bear Lincoln ended when he was found not guilty of murder in the fall of 1997 in the courthouse of Ukiah, California. He was acquitted on charges of first-degree and second-degree murder and with their jury divided 10 to 2 to exonerate him on the manslaughter charges. Apart from the divisive nature of this criminal trial, it also carried an extraordinary aspect. Seven of the 12 jurors chose to come forward and talk about their responses to what they heard and saw in the courtroom during the trial. Jane Diamond was a member of the jury that decided Mr. Lincoln's fate. She attended every session of the trial and every aspect of the jury's deliberations. She's our guest in this archive edition of Radio Curious, talking from her home in Fort Bragg, California, in the fall of 1997. Jane Diamond, welcome to Radio Curious.
1: Thank you, Barry. I'm glad to be here.
0: Tell us why seven of the 12 of you, the jury in the Lincoln trial, have chosen to come forward and talk about what you heard and saw.
1: Well, I think most of us have two immediate concerns. The the first is that we would like to uh, do whatever we can to ensure that Eugene Lincoln is not tried for manslaughter. And the the reason for that is that there is not evidence, uh, you know, that would convict him, and we feel that it would waste a lot more time and energy and not move forward into healing and reconciliation that most of us would like to see happen. Um, And that's the second agenda. The first is no manslaughter charges, and the second, to move forward and try to find some common ground between these communities and some kind of healing come out of the whole experience
0: well let's talk about the healing issue because that is uh, what has to happen whether there is or is not a uh, second or retrial on the manslaughter charges how do you see healing uh, being created in this situation
1: Well, I I personally feel, and I I think I speak for many of the the jurors also, that one major aspect needs to be uh, Jim Tussauds and Aaron Williams, who Aaron Williams is probably gone now at this point, but their statements to the effect that there was a miscarriage of justice in the jury's uh, decision, that somehow there was evidence that we didn't pay attention to, and Aaron Williams, in fact, referred to non-existent evidence in, in the one article that I read about his comments. Uh, when, when these kinds of comments are made, it leads people that were not present in the courtroom, that did not hear the evidence, uh, that were not part of the process at all, to come to the conclusion that someone must be accountable for Bob Davis's death and that that person should be Eugene Lincoln until that line of thought has ceased, there just can't be any healing. Uh, we, we feel, all of us, very sad for Phyllis Davis, for Bob Davis's widow and his family. It's terrible that they, that they lost him. And, and as long as they're led to believe that there's some kind of evidence showing a, that murder, a premeditation, any of those things, if, if they believe that to be the case, there cannot be healing until all of that inflammatory rhetoric ceases. And at the press conference last Thursday in Ukiah, um, both Bear Lincoln and Coralie Simmons and Lucia Lincoln spoke about the need for healing and reconciliation. And I was very impressed with that, their need to to move forward and, and work together and find common ground.
0: What I find is extraordinary about this situation is that uh, seven of the 12 jurors are willing to come forward, and before, you were just average citizens in our county uh, who really didn't know much about this case or its background.
1: Mm -hmm. It it, it is extraordinary. I think it's extraordinary also. And I think most of us are rather shocked to have come out at the end of this and not walk away from it and instead to to keep going and see some bigger issues to address indeed um i i am just an average citizen i've lived on the coast since 1984. i've raised my sons here Uh, i did not know very much about the case and after we were called first in april of last year the judge then instructed us to not read anything to not expose ourselves And I didn't. So basically, we all had had about six months of not reading about the case, not listening, not having conversations about it. And so we went into that trial really not knowing the whole story or any of the various uh, stories that people told. And we came out uh, quite convinced uh, of certain things that we want to keep talking about.
0: What was it that uh, convinced you or that motivated you um, to be on this radio program, to attend a press conference sponsored by the defendants, uh, to be an an activist, something that you weren't before?
1: Well, uh, frankly, Aaron Williams' comments, as quoted in the Press Democrat on Wednesday, October 1st, uh, led me to go to the press conference October 2nd. (laughs) Uh, he was so disrespectful of the jury and it really was so misleading in his comments that I felt and I know other people felt that we really needed to do what we could to get the real story out to people who were not present in the courtroom.
0: Can you tell us what he said first and then what the real story is?
1: First, he talked about uh, that he just couldn't understand how the jury had had not convicted uh, Eugene Lincoln of first-degree murder, and how shocked he was when we did not guilty on second-degree murder. And the one piece that that uh, of evidence he cited, and it's non-existent evidence, was that after all, there was a tape of the gunshots, and six of them were Dennis Miller's, and the other two, uh, that an expert had testified that the other two could only have been fired by a gun such as that of eugene lincoln and that that is simply not the case the evidence that we got was that the last six shots were consistent with an automatic but there was no evidence about the first two shots and you know i could go on and on about the details of the evidence and i won't do that unless you ask me to but when i saw when i read that statement and others of us felt this way too we felt so misrepresented and that he was deliberately misrepresenting what the case was that we felt we needed to do what we could to set the record straight as just your average ordinary citizen going in doing their civic duty following the law there were 100 pages of instructions that we followed very closely and we wanted to do what we could to get the, the correct information out
0: What is it like uh, to sit as a member of this jury and be told after every session of the court that you can't talk about it and that you cannot form an opinion? How do you control in your own mind not forming an opinion?
1: It is very difficult. Uh, It it is very difficult and the judge uh, was quite firm with us every single time we left the courtroom, whether it was for a break, a recess, a weekend, or overnight. He told us that every single time. Um, basically, we received a lot of information, and you know, since we weren't allowed to speak about this at all, even to our fellow jurors, and certainly not anyone else, we, we weren't ever able to process all that information that we were receiving. So I didn't necessarily have a hard time not drawing conclusions. I kept looking for the evidence that would convince me of something and not finding it. Uh, and so I, in my mind, I would be thinking, well, there's this question and that question that haven't been answered. But I think that we all were really careful to do what we could to not draw any conclusions until until deliberation.
0: What happened in, in the deliberations? How did they come together?
1: Well, the first, we started deliberations on a Wednesday late, late morning, and uh, we went into the jury room, and since we had never spoken about the trial in all the time that we had spent together, Um, Over those eight weeks of testimony, seven or eight weeks of testimony, the first thing really that we did was talk just in general about certain witnesses, certain pieces of evidence, certain questions we had. We did not take a vote right away. We didn't even necessarily say how we felt uh, what the verdict should be. We really just began by talking over all of that testimony. And that took us through the first day. Uh, By the second day, we were more focused in on the charges and what we believed had happened. Uh, You know, we told the story, the whole story, from several different angles and tried to see what made sense and where we all stood on that. And then we had the weekend. Uh, We had a three-day weekend, which was really good because we needed to get some distance. From, I think, from each other and from the never-ending conversation that was going on in that court, in the uh, jury room, and for myself, that whole weekend, um, it was always present in my mind—the whole scene on that ridge, the night of April Fourteenth, nineteen ninety-five—and it just played over and over again. So by Monday, we—it uh, was quite obvious—and we had taken votes here and there as we went along, and it was quite obvious by Monday where we stood. Uh, We had dismissed the murder charges almost immediately. That had happened really on Thursday. There was no evidence of murder.
0: Um, How did you dismiss those charges? With a vote of the 12 of you or in conversation?
1: it It was not a formal vote. It was a conversation and a consensus of all 12 people. Trying and and reading those instructions. I I can't uh, emphasize enough how important those instructions were to us. And so we would go and we read over and over again the description of first-degree murder, second-degree murder, attempted murder, self-defense, and tried to see where the evidence... We went over all the evidence. We looked at everything, um, talked about each piece of it. We had the photographs up. And by by Thursday, it was absolute consensus that, that murder was not, had not, that there was no evidence of murder.
0: That was Thursday on day two of deliberations.
1: Yes, it was.
0: I'd like to take a moment and say that my guest this week is Jane Diamond, a resident of Fort Bragg, California, who was a member of the... Eugene Bear Lincoln murder trial jury which resulted in an acquittal on first-degree and second-degree murder last month and a 10 to 2 vote for acquittal on manslaughter charges. You're listening to Radio Curious I'm Barry Vogel. Jane did during the time uh, when the jury listened but could not talk about the um, opinions that you had and could not form opinions, did certain friendships in a certain leadership or individual dev- uh, evolve as a leader of the jury?
1: No, I don't think so. Uh, we, I, It was probably well into the second week before we really all knew each other's names. Um, we talked about you know when you're when you're in that jury room as much as we were, and and that was quite often because the judge would send us out at various times. we We very rarely had a nine to five day. We were in and out of that courtroom. So we would talk about families and you know all all kinds of things. Um, and I would say that we all as individuals had different gifts that we brought into that jury room. But in terms of leadership, I don't think so. I, I didn't feel that way. I don't know if other people felt that. And then ultimately, we had someone volunteer to be the foreperson, the foreman. So we didn't even have to take a voter or, or deal with that. We had someone volunteer, and then each one of us participated in the deliberations in our own way.
0: How was it that uh, two of the twelve of you uh, felt strongly enough for a manslaughter conviction that it ended with a hung jury?
1: Well, that, that I, I still I still wish that we could have gone on and come out not hung, but we finally had to agree that we weren't going to get any further. and the the two people, uh, who felt very strongly about the manslaughter. Actually, I, I believe what they felt the most strongly about was someone had to be accountable. Eugene Lincoln made the decision to go back on that, up on that ridge. The rest of us felt that we would have done the same thing. We would have had to check on our friend. Those two people did not feel that that was a rational decision. They felt if they were in that same place, they would not go and check on their friend. And we pointed out to them that if had he wanted to kill Bob Davis and Dennis Miller, he could have easily done it by sneaking around and ambushing them, and instead he was walking down the road, uh, which doesn't show much thought about trying to, to kill someone. They never accepted that. They, they absolutely did not accept that. And even though we read the instructions about state of mind, about self-defense, about the need to, if you have two different stories that are both reasonable, that you must go with the version that supports innocence.
0: And that's the version that you heard in the courtroom?
1: Yes, and we had it in front of us. We had all of those instructions in front of us.
0: Is there anything that would lead you to believe that uh, any member of the jury had information that was obtained outside of the courtroom?
1: We felt a little nervous about that. Um, uh, And I felt a little more nervous, actually, afterwards, because, of course, I didn't know what they might know and I didn't. But uh, there were some references to, well, after all, Eugene Lincoln was a felon with guns and he shouldn't have had them, and we looked at this person and said, well, we never heard that in the courtroom. We can't consider that. You can't consider that. We don't know if it's true or not, and in any case, it wasn't in evidence. Um, The other person seemed to just have really strong feelings that someone had to be accountable. I don't know if I do not know that they had any outside information, but they sure had a different attitude than the rest of us.
0: Why do you think that was?
1: I I'm hesitant. I I don't think that I.
0: Or let me ask you this: Did you ask the other two jurors why they have the different attitude? What did they say about it?
1: One of them didn't answer. We we did ask that, and we we really were very puzzled about why they couldn't follow the very clear instructions that we had in front of us. That. Since both of those expl- both the explanations of self defense and manslaughter or uh, you know were, were reasonable. Why couldn't they go with the instructions that told us, okay, you have got to go toward innocence? And they wouldn't. And what they kept saying was that they felt that he had made the decision and he had to be accountable for going back up on that ridge that resulted in Bob Davis's death. In their in their minds, uh, they were really one of them didn't even respond and just sat and looked at us. And the other did try to explain um, that juror's particular feeling.
0: I'd like to ask you about the uh, courtroom itself and the effect, if any, of the presence of um, the sheriff and Mrs. Davis and um, the Lincoln family members and many members of the community present in the courtroom. Did that affect the jury in any way?
1: Uh, I don't. I don't believe so. I personally was not sure which one of the spectators was Mrs. Davis, and I did, hadn't really known who Sheriff Tusso was, and then I finally sort of figured it out. And again, I also didn't know who the family members of Eugene Lincoln were. I had no idea really of who the individuals were in the courtroom. Most of the jurors. Uh, really just paid attention to the lawyers and the and the witness and we didn't look we didn't make too much eye contact i think with the, with the courtroom so i don't think that it had an effect other than underlining the real importance of doing this right of really listening really not making up our minds
0: Before the decision, did the jury ever become aware of the fact that uh, the the defense part of the uh, trial was broadcast on public radio?
1: Yes, the judge told us. He told us the day that that started.
0: Did that make any difference?
1: No. No, that didn't make any difference at all. I'm glad people had an opportunity to actually hear what went on in the courtroom. I think that leads to people being much more informed instead of just reading a summary of it, although some summaries, like Nick Wilson's in the Elvian Monitor that I've read since, made me feel like I was right back in the courtroom, they were so accurate. But I was glad people had an opportunity to to hear that.
0: I'd like to talk again about the uh, need for healing that you've mentioned at the beginning uh, here today and ask you what role if any that you could see the sheriff's office and the district attorney's office uh, doing to create healing
1: well the first thing i think would be to not go forward with a manslaughter trial i think that's going to keep the wound absolutely open in the law enforcement community for the davis family it's going to open it all up again for them and frankly, it's going to get nowhere. Any jury is going to come to the same conclusion we did.
0: If they do go forward, is there any evidence that they could present that would change your mind to vote for a conviction for manslaughter?
1: No. I, I'm i assuming that we had all of the evidence in terms of the bullet fragment, uh, the sound recording of the, the bullets. Uh, we were very... Uh, puzzled about the trail of blood, and that was never really pursued, and there's something very unusual about that. There was evidence that just did not hang together in the in the prosecution's story. Um, I can't imagine any evidence that would change any of our minds.
0: Why do you think the case was prosecuted in first-degree and second-degree murder with such a uh, fervor um, as it was,
1: you know, I cannot imagine why it was uh the only guess that I would make is that again the the rather emotional feeling of it was a police o- one of the people that lost their lives on that ridge was a police officer, and there just was I think a great overreaction uh why to do that why um, why was there the overreaction yes i don't know other than a feeling i'm afraid to go down that road in a way um i think that i think they felt someone had to be accountable um but in that whole thing leonard peters somehow got lost and he died on that ridge also Uh, the, the whole thing was a terrible tragedy i don't know why they pursued it in such an overstated way Uh, Both the way that they started presenting it immediately, their presence in the Valley after it happened apparently was quite heavy, and then the, the murder charges. Why did they do that? Tony Sarah asked those questions at the press conference, and I agree with all the questions he asked. Why was this charged as a murder case?
0: And we don't have answers yet.
1: We don't have any answers.
0: After the trial was over, what kind of reaction did you receive from uh, your family and friends and acquaintances for having been a member of this jury?
1: Overall, people first said, "Thank you for doing your civic duty uh, you know and, and uh, which was was very nice to hear. Um, my family and friends were very supportive all the way along, knowing they couldn't talk to me about how I was spending all of my time. And they were they were happy to hear the details of what we had done and how we had come to that conclusion. There are a few people who have said to me that Bear Lincoln got away with murder. Uh, there, there's a few people that aren't speaking to me. And I think, again, that goes back to the healing of they, they feel that somebody has to pay and they don't know the evidence and they don't know the details, nor do they want to. And I think, again, it's important that we go forward and Oh boy, and really look at the evidence that was there and that wasn't there.
0: Jane, as we come to the close of our program, I'd like to ask you how you rank being on this jury in your life experiences.
1: Oh, this has been a major life experience and I didn't really expect it to be. I I'm still puzzling over you know, over how I feel about the whole experience. It was very, very difficult, not only the driving, I drove to Ukiah and back every day, four days a week, for eight weeks, and and, you know, that gets a little tiring. Sure. The living in a vacuum, not being able to speak at all about what was going through my mind, what I was hearing and thinking and all of that. And then those questions, the, the why questions of why this trial happened the way it did, uh, has had really an, a deep effect on me and I think on most of those jurors and that 's why we 're speaking out if it hadn't affected us, so we would not be speaking out and let me maybe I can give the, a last image that stays in my mind that was very effective and that was the last day when people knew we were bringing in a verdict and on the we went up to our little conf, our jury conference room and looked out the side window and saw all of the armed sheriff's people getting our van ready to take us to our car after the verdict and you know SWAT team and lots of people with guns and uniforms and we looked out the front window and by then there weren't many people out there they were in the courtroom but there was an altar out in front and that's where bear lincoln's supporters had been there was an altar there were burning candles and you know just the whole difference of approach that made a deep impression on, on all of us, I think.
0: Well, Jane, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you the question I ask all of my guests. And that is, very briefly, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately?
1: Oh, one of the best books that I've read lately is Independent People by Haldor Lachsnes. Uh It is absolutely a fabulous book. I can't recommend it. More highly. It happens the early part of this century in Iceland, and it was wonderful.
0: Jane Diamond, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious.
1: Thank you, Barry.
0: Jane Diamond was a member of the jury that found Eugene Bear Lincoln innocent of murder charges when he was on trial for allegedly having shot a deputy sheriff in the fall of 1997. The book that Jane Diamond recommends is Independent People by Haldor Locksmith. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah,